From WSCFM and HD1 Columbia, I'm Morjalis. And I'm Erin Slowey. This is Localized from WUSC News. Last year in South Carolina, over 100 people died from the flu. And with the pandemic, steps to prevent transmission are more important than ever. Here to discuss what precautions you should be taking this flu season is Sabra Custer, Associate Professor at the College of Nursing. Also here with us is Jackson Knighter, President of College Democrats. He's here to talk about last night's final presidential debate. It's definitely different than the first one. All the key takeaways and what it means for both campaigns as the election enters its final days. All that and more tonight on Localize. The news is first. Live from WSC News, I'm Summer Rogers. The University of South Carolina COVID-19 dashboard remains at new normal. USC currently has 58 total active cases. 99.7% of isolation and quarantine space is available on campus. After recently implementing incentivized testing here on campus, the university is offering a new option for students with a different kind of test. WUSC's Spencer Buckler has more. The University of South Carolina is now offering free antibody testing. People at USC can get tested on the first floor of the health center. The antibody tests are not meant to replace normal COVID testing and results should be available in two to three days. This comes as the university says they'll be distributing the safe testing to other schools throughout the state. It's unclear when other schools might start testing and how many tests they might get. Spencer Buckler, WUSC News. Columbia. Richland County officials are seeing a record-breaking turnout for voting this year. With six voting locations here in the Midlands, state election workers are seeing more South Carolinians taking to the polls early this election season. The deadline for absentee ballot applications is 5 p.m. tomorrow, October 24th. In-person absentee voting will end on November 2nd at 5 p.m. With just under two weeks until the election, President Donald Trump and former Vice President Joe Biden faced off in the third and final presidential debate last night. WUSC's Finn Carlin reports. The final presidential debate between President Donald Trump and former Vice President Joe Biden went live from Belmont University in Nashville, Tennessee last night. Both candidates had an hour and a half to debate topics like COVID-19, American families and the economy, national security, racial justice, climate change, and presidential leadership. Each candidate had two minutes of opening statements for each topic where the other candidate's microphone was muted, followed by 10 minutes of open discussion. The debate last night, moderated by Kristen Welker of NBC News, was much more traditional than the first presidential debate, with far fewer interruptions and far more policy debate between Trump and Biden, as reported by NPR News. While the debates are over and there is much campaigning to be done by each candidate, early voting has reached record numbers, as reported by the Washington Post and NBC News reporting that roughly 47 percent of those votes have been mail-in ballots. Finn Carlin, WSC News, Columbia. Tomorrow night, the Gamecocks will face off against the defending national college football champions. Kickoff against LSU is set for 7.30 p.m. in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. After last weekend's win, the Gamecocks are 2-2, hoping to add another victory tomorrow night. The Dow Jones Industrial Average dropped 28 points today, the NASDAQ rose 42 points, and the S&P 500 rose 11 points. It's currently 81 degrees outside and cloudy with a low of 63 tonight. 
Tomorrow will be cloudy as well with a high of 82 degrees and a low of 64. I'm Summer Rogers, and you're listening to WUSC News. It's 6.07. A social distancing tip. While the CDC urges you to avoid close contact, like hugging or shaking hands, there are other non-physical ways to say hello. Wave, wink, use sign language, salute, smile, give the peace sign, throw up an air high five, do jazz hands. Remember, stay a minimum of six feet or two arms length away from others and stay home if you can. For more info, visit coronavirus.gov. Let's all do our part because we're all hashtag alone together. Brought to you by the Ad Council. I'm Erin Slowey, and this is Localize. The arrival of COVID-19 in the United States has had many people making all sorts of new adjustments to help mitigate the spread of the virus. But how will this new normal affect a familiar problem? Late fall marks the beginning of flu season, which, although less flashy than the coronavirus, presents South Carolinians with its own slew of health risks. Here to discuss how you can help limit the spread of the flu is Dr. Custer from the College of Nursing. Thank you for joining me. How are you doing? I'm all right. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So the first question that I have for you is the flu virus is constantly changing and people often use that as an excuse to not get the vaccine. What are the what are the viruses this year that the influenza vaccine like will protect against? Well, this year's influenza vaccines, most of them are quadrivalent vaccines. So within one form, within one shot for most people, that's how we usually get it. So one vaccination will protect against four different strains of the flu. So last year, the flu vaccine had around a 29% effectiveness rate. A decade ago, the effectiveness was about 60%. So even though these numbers show a decrease in effectiveness, why should people get the vaccine every year? Well, one thing I would like to clarify slightly is I don't believe there's been a consistent trend downward. Mm -hmm. I think from year to year, the effectiveness can change. And it's really a matter of how well the vaccine makers predict the strains that will be prevalent that upcoming season. But even if we find out after the fact that a particular flu season, the vaccine was not a great match, Getting a flu vaccine, even if you still become infected with the flu, there is good evidence to show that you will have a less severe infection and less likely to suffer complications from the flu. Mm-hmm. So people are mostly contagious in the first like three to four days when symptoms begin for the flu. Like how does the flu spread? Uh, the flu mostly spreads through what we call droplet transmission. So when someone is infected with influenza, and as you said, the highest rate of infectivity is right before and then when their symptoms are the worst, but people can still shed virus for up to a week or a little more. So you can still potentially be infectious even once you're feeling better. But regardless of exactly when, the main way you spread flu is person to person by coughing on someone, sneezing close enough to them, and those droplets from your airway can spread about six feet. So besides getting the flu shot, what are some other preventative measures that people can take to not get the flu this season? Well, this is where there might be some helpful crossover between influenza and the virus that causes COVID-19. The very basic things like washing your hands frequently, 
cleaning frequently used surfaces, staying home, keeping to yourself if you're sick with just general respiratory symptoms, some of those precautions and wearing a face covering when you're out in public, some of those things that we're doing a lot now for months to protect against COVID-19 infections, that also will help prevent other respiratory infections like the flu. Mm -hmm. So in South Carolina, DHEC requires vaccines for students who attend school that don't have an exemption. So that includes like vaccines for hepatitis, mumps, and polio. Do you think the flu shot should be required for students? Absolutely, I do. <laughs> You're speaking to a nurse who yeah. works in infectious diseases. Yes. <laughs> I wish it were mandatory. Yeah. So the percentage of young children in the U.S. who do not get any vaccines has quadrupled since 2001, according to the CDC. CDC, what are some mi common misconceptions about the flu shot and why are they not true? Well, some of the common things I hear from patients about the flu shot are a little bit more specific than some of the broader concerns about childhood vaccines. Of course, the unfounded myth about connections with autism is a common concern that circulates specifically about MMR. But thinking about just the flu vaccine, I come in contact with a lot of folks who don't quite understand how the vaccine works and they have the misconception that the vaccine may actually give them influenza. And all forms of vaccine that are through the shot, those forms of influenza vaccine are what we call inactivated or dead virus. Um, so there is no possibility that getting vaccinated through an injection can actually give you the flu. The inhaled form is a very weakened form of the virus. So there is a very small chance that that form of vaccine may develop into the flu. But that's why we don't recommend that form of flu vaccination for anyone with a weakened immune system. So misunderstanding that they could actually get the flu is a common concern that I hear. And then I've started to hear a few patients this season. Unfortunately, I'm noticing some crossover with a lot of the misinformation that's out there about COVID-19 and the COVID vaccine development. I've had a couple patients express concerns that perhaps without appropriate notice and public information that COVID vaccine is going to be somehow mixed in or snuck into the flu vaccines. And that's absolutely not true. And it really distresses me to hear that. Mm -hmm. So since the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic, it has been compared to the flu. Last year, approximately 22,000 people died from the flu in the U.S. And then as of October 17th, there were about 209,000 deaths related to COVID. So is the coronavirus more dangerous than the flu? Yes, it is. It is. Mm -hmm. Everything we continue to learn, the virus that's causing COVID-19 is causing more deaths and the virus is causing much broader problems in patients than just an isolated respiratory illness. We're seeing folks with clotting disorders and mental um, cognitive long-term problems after COVID-19. There's just so many unknowns related to COVID-19. It, really, um, it really concerns me to hear people write it off and say that it's no worse than the flu because we're continuing to learn that it's a lot worse than the flu. Mm -hmm. And could someone potentially have the flu and COVID at the same time? They could, and that's a scary proposition. Mm -hmm. um, it would be uh, 
overlapping problems and much more damage directly to that respiratory system if an individual were to have influenza infection and COVID-19 at the same time. Do you think that the coronavirus pandemic will have an impact on turnout for people who get the flu shot? Uh, We hope so, (laughs) both in every opportunity I get, like this interview, and then in my individual interactions with patients. I'm just personally trying to emphasize that, you know, we don't have a direct way to prevent COVID-19. We don't have a vaccination for that yet. We're still finding out even about treatments for COVID-19, but we have got a clear, effective, safe prevention for influenza. And so it's so vital that we use it this season. So I hope it will improve people getting their flu shots. Yeah. So for a closing question, how can someone in the midst of a pandemic safely get a flu vaccine? Where where can people go to get it? Oh, there's lots of options. Most major pharmacy chains will provide flu vaccinations. Uh, Pharmacists are licensed to give vaccination injections. A lot of places, my daughter's pediatrician's office is doing drive-through flu shots. So there's a lot of healthcare providers, urgent care clinics, pharmacies, trying to make the process as easy and simple as possible in and out, do our social distancing that we're needing to practice right now, but still find a way to get your flu shot. Well, that's all the questions that I have. Thank you so much for joining me. That's all the time that we have. (laughs) That was Dr. Custer from the College of Nursing. Up next, we'll hear from the College Democrat president about last night's debate. We'll be right back. Imagine being fired because of who you love. Imagine being denied medical treatment because of who you marry. Imagine being evicted because of who you are. Millions of Americans don't have to imagine this. They have to live it. Because in 30 states, it's legal to discriminate against LGBT people. Get the facts at beyondido.org. Brought to you by the Gill Foundation and the Ad Council. You're listening to Localize from WUSC News. I'm Ward Jollis. Last night, President Donald Trump and Democratic challenger, former Vice President Joe Biden, met in Nashville for the second and final time on the debate stage. The two sparred over issues of foreign policy, climate change, the response to COVID-19, and more. This after the Commission for Presidential Debates announced that the candidates would have their microphones muted during some segments to prevent the kind of interruptions seen in the first debate. Here to discuss how it all went down and what it means for the rest of the election is Jackson Neidert. He's the president of College Democrats here at USC. Jackson, thanks for joining me today. Yeah, my pleasure. All right. So, Jackson, first of all, you know, a very different tone last night at the debate um, from President Trump. What's what's that all about? Yeah, I I think, you know, there I I think we've seen this president uh, be, you know, very uh, reactionary. Um, and you know, I, I think there was a huge reaction to a negative reaction to how the first uh, um, how, how the first uh, debate went, and so I think 
you know, that coupled with the, you know, policy um, that was implemented, uh, you know, led to this more restrained action. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely there were some sparring moments, but uh, for sure, it was, it, you know, uh, those times that were after the two minute mark were, were more restrained. Yeah. So, uh, you know, just a quick question. What do you think are probably some of the biggest takeaways from last night? There were quite a few. Um, I talked to some people who were watching the debate. I watched the debate myself. A lot of repeated topics, but there were some new ones too. What were some of these big takeaways? Yeah. Uh, I think at the beginning, you know, they started with the coronavirus. I think, you know, that has, has been something that the Biden campaign has, you know, been talking about for a long time. Um, and the, the Trump campaign, you know, really does not have an answer to, um, you know, that they have not been able to successfully, you know, contend with this virus. And they, they don't have a, a suitable answer to, um, you know, over 200,000 lives right at this point so I, th I think that was you know a, a big moment um just as it was in the first debate another one uh you know the the president i i've, I've seen the uh conspiracy theories but i was honestly surprised to see the president bring up uh the conspiracy theories uh over this laptop um from Hunter Biden that somehow made its way to, you know, some third party uh, computer repair shop. Mm. Uh, you know, I, I looked into this uh, It, you know, even Fox News decided not to publish it because they did not, yeah. you know, think that it was verifiable. Uh, so, you know, I, I, I mean, I'm not surprised that he went and talked about it, but, you know, i disappointed. Yeah, yeah. and, um, you know, that's – I, I feel like at this point in time, you know, Trump is – Trump is um, – this has been a big issue, I think, that viewers need to uh, be aware of is Trump kind of playing off of these conspiracy theories recently. Um, you know, QAnon is another thing that has been brought up recently. You've probably heard of Pizzagate is another one that um, has repeatedly been brought up by, uh, you know, people on the right. Um, but it's important that, you know, these fact checking organizations out there, uh, like you said, can can, you know, assure people that a lot of these claims are false. Um, but, you know, at this point, the Trump campaign is is trailing. Uh you know, latest polls that have came out today, he's 10 points behind Biden um, in national polls. Um, but, you know, a lot of people, especially Democrats, seeing these leads, six, seven, eight points, especially in these key swing states, um, you know, it's encouraging. But also looking back to 2016, Hillary Clinton was also up by similar numbers in some of these key swing states. And like many people know, these swing states are the states that decide the election 90% of the time. Um, so what is your take on that? Do you think Democrats are being more cautious this time around? Or um, you think we could see something similar to 2016 in these states? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I think I think we're seeing uh, some different, um, you know, uh, 
different um, move movements um, by the Democrats. I, I definitely think they recognize, um, you know, so some of what's uh, being, you know, pursued by the Trump campaign. Um, you know, I, I also think for one that, uh, you know, the polling uh, organizations, uh, you know, saw the, um, uh, you know, sort of errors um, that were made in 2016. Um, yeah. You know, well, speaking I, of which, speaking of which, you know, there's a few there's a few states out there that I do want to mention. Um, you know, Georgia, Texas, traditionally solid red states that now people are, you know, Democrats, especially even looking at as possible pickups this year. Um, you know, you mentioned the polling errors in 2016, but, you know, how much of that can be can carry over to these states? I mean, is there do you think there's any chance that Democrats can pick up these states? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I think uh, irregardless of, you know, um, you know, that kind of uh, error or whatever that might have happened. I, I mean, I think, um, uh, you know, there are massive efforts uh, in those states. I, I think, you know, there's definitely a lot of momentum there. Um, I think it, some of the states, I think, currently or nationally or currently are overall, um, I think you mentioned Texas, I think might be leaning still slightly red, but very much go blue, which, you know, would be extremely exciting and would, you know, almost certainly determine the election, you know. Um, though, however, I would imagine Texas uh, would be, you know, not the first state to come in. So I uh, could very well, uh, yeah, you know, with, uh, with Texas in particular, all their counties' uh, election systems are uh, different, unlike yeah. South Carolina. Yeah, I, I want to go into some of these key moments from last night um, that I think, you know, were probably some of the standout moments. I think one of the biggest uh, last night from President Trump was when he called out Biden for being a career politician. Uh, take a listen. You know, Joe, I, I ran because of you. I ran because of Barack Obama, because you did a poor job. If I thought you did a good job, I would have never run. I would have never run. I ran because of you. I'm looking at you now. You're a politician. I ran because of you. All right. So that was uh, President Trump last night calling out Joe Biden for being a career politician. Um, and, you know, you could tell after President Trump's response that former Vice President Biden really didn't know how to respond to that. Um, and after all, Trump did win in 2016 on the premise that he's an outsider candidate. I mean, do you think that he can swing that this time? Yeah, so, you know, Trump has had four years in the, you know, White House, um, or, or almost, right? And one thing that we've seen is that, you know, he's, uh, you know, used, um, you know, uh, nepotism and uh, has used, uh, you know, the... Um, the money and, uh, you know, of his, uh, you know, you know, friends that have donated to campaigns and, and that, like, have, have been placed in, you know, positions. Uh, he, he did campaign on the draining the swamp 
but he's just, you know, I mean, and that sort of idea, he's just gone and, you know, made it larger, right? Um, now, to your point about Biden, um, yeah, he, he has been there a long time. You know, I, I think 47 years is the number. Uh, and, um, you know, he, he certainly, uh, you know, has, has done a lot on the time. Uh, yes, one, one of the things that was brought up was the crime bill. And, you know, uh, certainly is, you know, Joe Biden last night apologized for that. Uh, yeah, that's, I know, think that was, one yeah, I think that was a big moment. Uh, another big moment and, you know, that I think we should definitely talk about uh, fracking. Uh, at one point, Biden said he would slowly move away from oil and towards renewable energy. Um, and I want to remind everyone listening also that oil extraction is a huge source of income for people living in states like Pennsylvania uh, or Texas. Um, but, but, you know, then he went back a little bit on it saying, you know, he never said he was completely against fracking just on federal lands. Uh, but we know that, you know, in a previous debate last year, Biden at least heavily suggested that he was completely against fracking. Um, what's the deal here? Uh, what, you know, why can't we get clear messaging on this? Yeah, so... You know, I, I think that's, um, you know, something that, uh, you know, e even in the, um, you know, Democratic Party that, uh, you know, where, um, you know, uh, also, you know, a little uh, confused by, but, um, you know, if, if you looked at uh, his plan, um, you know, I'd say here, you know, I, I'm part of the college Democrats here on campus, as, as mentioned earlier. And a lot of our members, uh, you know, are really passionate about uh, climate change and um, ways to prevent that. Um, and if you look at, at uh, Biden's plan, uh, after he won uh, the nomination or was the presumptive nominee, uh, he revamped his plan. And it's incredibly more progressive than it was prior to that. Uh, including provisions to uh, make uh, the country uh, net zero uh, or zero emissions by, I believe, the year 2050 and, and net uh, zero emissions by 2035, if I have those numbers correct. Yeah, yeah. And so I want to go into um, the last segment of the interview a little bit um, about race, which was a hard-hitting topic last night. Um, at one point, Donald Trump said that he had that he had done more for African-Americans than any other president except for possibly Lincoln. Uh, he also claimed that he was the least racist person in the room, which, you know, I, I think a lot of people thought was ridiculous, uh, specifically, you know, considering the moderator of the debate was a woman of color. Um, and it's it's not the first time that he said something like this. Um, I do also want to mention Biden's response to Kristen Welker's um, question about the talk. Uh, and I think these are all really key moments from last night's debate that should be worth mentioning. But comparing these two candidates and their response to these questions on race, what, what were your immediate takeaways? Yeah, um, you know, I, I've heard that line from Trump before. Um, you know, I, I 
think you can look at his, uh, you know, record of uh, xenophobic and and uh, racist actions. Uh, I think they sort of speak for themselves. Um, and if, if you wouldn't mind uh, talking, re- re- repeating um, Biden's response to the moderator. About I, the talk. So when asked about no, the talk. I'm aware of that, but, but uh, yeah, Biden's response. Yeah, well, you know, he was very compassionate about um, this and saying that he had spent a lot of time in areas of Delaware that were majority um, African-American. But I think that... I think that a lot of people, you know, and I can't I can't speak for the African-American community, obviously, um, but a lot of people seeing these two white men on the stage, um, both vying for the presidency this year, a lot of people think that they're tone deaf in this area. Um, and so I'm just curious about what your take is on this messaging coming from two white men. Yeah, um, I, I I'll admit that I I think I was out of the room during that um, conversation, which is why I asked you to re- repeat it. Gotcha. Um, <laughs> That's totally fine. That's totally fine. Um, we'll move on to the next question then. Um, I, I want to mention Kristen Welker's moderation last night is the last thing. Um, Kristen Welker, NBC News reporter, uh, she is a White House correspondent. Uh, it's been greatly her performance has been greatly hailed by many different publications today. But you know you can't forget the thing uh, about the mics. She was helped out a little bit at the beginning of the debate uh, during their introduction. The mics were muted, so that's a change from the last time. Uh, what were your general thoughts about that performance? Yeah, I thought she did a really good job. Um, I thought she had uh, some, you know, uh, some some good questions, you know, hard-hitting questions to both candidates. Um, uh, you know, with, with uh, the first um, debate, you know, there was uh, some, seemed to be some, you know, pleasing of that sort that so you didn't really see uh, this time around. Um, one one thing that I, I don't think was uh, you know really her fault um, probably more around the sort of microphone you know muting rules was you know I I definitely noticed people uh, particularly uh, President Trump talking over her yeah. uh, and that you know sort of frustrated the watch party that I was with yeah last night yeah I'm gonna have to end it there but last thing really quick before you go yes or no. Does last night's debate performance change the state of the race at all going into the election? I think not at all. All right. Well, that was Jackson Neidert. He says that the state of the race has not been changed by this debate. Jackson, thanks so much for joining me today. Yeah, thank you so much. And that's it for this episode of Localize. Make sure to join us every Friday at 6 p.m. for our local take on this week's biggest stories. Localize is a production by WSC News and is produced by Mary Bryant Charles and Borjalis. The outreach coordinator for Localize is Rita Naidu, and the music for the show is called Freedom by Atch. If you like what you hear and you want to listen to other WSC News shows, and can, you can find those at garnetmediagroup.org. Brady Fitzgerald has the sports up next. I'm Ward Jollis. And I'm Erin Slowey. We'll see you next week.